We are continuing our scripture reading from John's Gospel, and we'll be reading from John's Gospel, chapter 7, reading from verse 14. Let's hear the word of God. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honour for himself. But he who works for the honour of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Your demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And what did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Truly understanding what Jesus is about, understanding his teaching, whether that's in terms of coming to know him in the first place or coming to know him better as a Christian, is obviously in some ways, is not just about your head. It's not about how clever you are. And I, I think all of us know that on some level. But I was reminded about it quite forcefully this week. We had friends staying and my friend was talking about someone he knows who has quite considerable learning difficulties, but he and you know doesn't really read anything except his Bible. And he knows it backwards. And because of that, he has this instinct for Christian teaching that comes from a willingness to listen to what Jesus is saying. What, what makes it possible for him to know the Bible better than many of us, maybe most of us, maybe all of us, I don't know, do? Often, like everything, it is about our biases, our prejudices, about our feelings, our willingness to listen to what God says. It's, in other words, it's a matter of the heart and the emotions and what's going on in, inside us rather than just the way we think. In the next chapter, Jesus will say, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The first part of our reading, the, the part we're focusing on today, is Jesus helping people to do exactly that. Helping to, them to see clearly, to get past their own biases, so that they really can be set free by the truth. I think all of us know on some level that we have biases, don't we? And perhaps if we uh, chatted over coffee after the service about exactly what different news sources each of us prefer to get our news from, you know, whether it's The Guardian or The Telegraph, The Independent or GB News or somewhere in between. If we had that discussion after the service, we'd soon discover that we at least thought that quite a lot of other people in the congregation were deeply biased. I don't recommend that discussion necessarily, by the way. We would we would realize pretty quickly that all of us are touched by biases and difficulties. Now, last week we spoke how opposition to Jesus was heating up, how the religious leaders sought to kill him, so that when the 
the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles came around. He chose not to go up publicly with the crowds of pilgrims to worship in Jerusalem. He went up secretly instead. And while they were waiting for him, wondering if he'd come, we saw the crowds become divided over him. Was he a good man or a liar? And it's the beginning of the, the big dispute in this chapter. Who is this man who speaks like no one else? Who can he be? And we talked about how his claims are so grand that he can't be just a good bloke or a good moral teacher. He's either far more or far less. He's either deceiving people, or he's a liar, in other words, or he's deluded, he's self-deceived, or he's divine. And that fits, too, with what we've seen so far in John. In chapter 6, so many people left him because his teaching was demanding and shocking. And at the same time, the disciples had discovered that they couldn't bring themselves to leave him. Because when they listened to his words, they were like nothing else. They were words of life. And this week, we see more of that played out. Will people come and recognize his words as the words of life? Now, we're going to look at the chapter, uh, around two challenges Jesus offers. He says in um, verse um, 17, If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So 14 to 17, we'll look at that one. And then the second part, 18 to 24, he gives us another challenge. He says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. So the first of those challenges, choosing to do God's will. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. The first thing Jesus teaches in this passage is the way he speaks from the Father, not merely passing on messages, but absolutely faithful because of the way he comes from the Father. And as he begins to teach, people are already amazed. How did this man get such learning without having studied? He hasn't studied under the great teachers and rabbis. You know, if they were modern, they'd be saying, how can someone who left school at 16 know all of this? And Jesus answers them. He says, The reason my teaching is special, is different, is because it's not my own. It comes from him who sent me. It's not a bunch of clever ideas I came up with or discovered in old books or when I was meditating or praying. This is straight from God himself. Now, because that's such a big claim, he immediately says that there is a test that they can apply to discover whether this is true. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God. If you want to recognize real teaching from God, then you need to be willing to obey real teaching from God. If, on the other hand, you're going to reject God's will for you and for your life, you shouldn't be able to expect to see clearly teaching from God when you receive it. It's uh, like a scientist. You know, if you're doing an experiment... Do you really plan to discover the truth? If you discover a truth that undermines everything you've said so far and makes, means admitting things you've done wrong in the past, mistakes you've made, uh, means admitting that so far your career has been a problem, will you still publish what you find? Or are you underneath, perhaps even subconsciously, determined to make your career look good, to show your opponents that you've been right all the way along? If you are like that, it's not that merely that you might deliberately pretend your results are different. You might not even see the truth staring you in the face. And that is a huge problem, as many of you will know in modern science. That the underlying bias of scientists 
is something that's continually debated between scientists as they try and discover whether they've really discovered something real or whether people are seeing patterns in the data that just support their careers. In the same way, we cannot recognise the truth of God if we're not willing to obey it. Now, that, that's a, a really important and simple truth in some ways. And if we're not Christians, um, it's a simple reminder from the start that all of us are biased. We, to be a good judge of anything, whether something is true or not, we need to be objective, don't we, to see it clearly. But the reality is that none of us as human beings are objective. And so we need to come and ask ourselves, are we seeing clearly? Because when it comes down to it, if Jesus is right and real and true, then we do have to live our lives his way. He makes marvellous promises for us. But if he's the real thing, we will have to give up the ways we do lots of things. We'll have to obey him in the way we spend our money, in the way we spend our time, with our sexuality, our love, our leisure, our work. Everything will need to be submitted to him. Those of us who are Christians will know friends who have walked away from the faith because exactly because they didn't want to live with God's commands in that way. Whether that's a flagrant way. Um, think of a friend who left his wife and so he could square that with his conscience, abandon his faith as well. Or very simple, subtle ways. Again, those of us who are Christians know in some ways that we've had to do that. When we became Christians, we had to choose to live in a way that was different from the way we lived before. But Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if we're Christians, we can we can bear witness to that. There is a freedom that comes in knowing and obeying the truth that Jesus preaches. So when we examine the evidence for the truth of what he said, we have to look not just outward at what he said and did, but also inward at ourselves. In what ways am I avoiding the truth? In what ways might I be preferring to judge from appearance, to reject him on little details so I can avoid the big picture and avoid making a right judgment? We mustn't dismiss what he says without asking ourselves, what are my biases? Why might I not want to come face to face with this? Do I really want to do what's best? Now, Jesus' second challenge is a challenge to judge rightly. He says, stop judging by mere appearances. Make a right judgment. Now, this is a crowd of people who came to worship God at a religious feast. They're religious people. They would claim to be living by God's will. So they're going to need a little bit of convincing if they're going to believe that they're biased in this sort of way. So Jesus, Jesus starts. He says, you know what messengers are like. If a messenger really wants to gain honour for the one who sent him, in other words, do a good job to make the person who sent him look good, they'll pass on the message honestly. If, on the other hand, they want to gain honour for themselves, if they want to look good, if they want something for themselves there is a danger that they will bend the message. Um, I don't know how often you get parcels. Probably through COVID, you've got a lot more things through the post than before. If your delivery man wants to make the company look good and efficient, he will come and ring your doorbell and put the parcel right in your hands. Uh, just the same state it was sent. 
If, on the other hand, you have a delivery man who's a little bit fed up of the pushy delivery company he works for, wants to make a bit of cash and get home to dinner, then you will perhaps find a nice parcel of fragile electronics carefully lobbed over your fence and left to moulder in the rain. Are, um, are we the only people who have experienced that in the last couple of years? <laughs> um, Jesus is asking them, look at my life, look at me and my teaching. Which kind of delivery man am I? You'll see later. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? In other words, look at my deeds and my words. Now, um, that's an argument I wouldn't make, none of us could make, but Jesus can stand up there in front of them without fear of heckling, saying, can you, any of you prove me guilty of sin? And he's also asking them, how about you? You claim to worship God, you, you claim to wear the uniform of that delivery firm, but are you thinking about carefully delivering those parcels or about getting home to dinner? Where's your bias? He's got a question that will help them check. He says to them, you know, you believe as good Jews that God has told you his will for his, your lives already. He has given you Moses who taught you his law. God gave law through Moses. Now, he says, not one of you keeps the law. None of you live up to God's standards. So you are biased. You are going to struggle to see the truth. And he gives them a really dramatic example. He goes straight for the biggest one. Why are you trying to kill me? He's saying, I'm having to creep around the country because the teachers of the, this law, God's will, want to kill me. The law that says do not murder. The law that says and the accused has to have a trial and witnesses for and against. If you're disobeying the law that flagrantly, how can you possibly claim to be unbiased enough to work out whether I'm speaking the truth or not? To judge whether these are God's words or not? Now, the, the crowd is full of pilgrims from outside Jerusalem, and, and, and they're a little bit slow to pick up on the vibes going on in the city. Um, we'll see the Jerusalemites a little later in the passage, perhaps next week, uh, know exactly what's going on. They know about the plans to kill Jesus, but these guys say, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? In other words, you're, you're mad. You're paranoid. Jesus reminds them, I did one miracle last time I was in Jerusalem. I healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. And because I did it on the Sabbath, God's day of rest, people were offended. And he says, look, think about it. You know that the Sabbath, God's weekly day of rest, is a good thing, a command from God. But you know that not everything is forbidden on that day. For example, you take... Uh, God commanded you to circumcise every boy born eight days after he was born. And that circumcision was a symbol, like baptism is, so it's showing that we need an operation on us from the outside to make, make us truly good, to be remade, to be right, made right with God. In other words, it's a symbol of true healing from God. And he says, you know that has to be done. Why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? I did the real thing. The Sabbath is a day for rest and healing. So don't be barracks room lawyers and jobsworths and legalists. Don't just reduce it to a simple little rule that's easy for you to obey and feel good about. See the deeper point, uh, the reason that God gave this law. In other words, stop judging by mere appearances. Make a right judgment. In modern terms, you're biased, you're prejudiced. You don't have real commitment to God's will at all. 
Jesus is saying, if you listen to me, if you think about these things, you can learn to see clearly, to recognize my words. Jesus could have made a lot of different arguments at that point about the Sabbath. He does in lots of other parts of the Bible, the Gospels. But the thing is, he's not just trying to win the argument. And we'll see that more next week through the passage. You know, when they say, um, you can't be the Messiah because the Messiah comes from Bethlehem and you're from Galilee. He doesn't give the obvious answer of, actually, if you check, I am from Bethlehem. Because he's not just trying to win the argument. He's trying to help them see into their own souls, trying to win them over. And the remarkable thing is that he is much more successful than you might think. Because a little later in the passage, the religious leaders will send the temple guards to arrest him. Now finally, they are closing in, they're getting closer, but they begin to listen to his words and they begin to think. Now these men, the temple guards, were not thugs or soldiers or mercenaries. They were specially chosen from the tribe of Levi, chosen to serve and protect God's temple, trained in the scriptures. And when they listen, when they examine their hearts as they listen, they are awed by what Jesus says. And they turn around and go right back to the people who sent them. No one ever spoke the way this man does. They can't arrest this man because his words speak of something else. Like the disciples, they, they begin to see that he has truly got the words of life, that he's truly speaking from the Father. They pause, they put aside their prejudices, and, you know, those would have been real. It's going to cost them something to say this to the religious leaders. But they go back and they say, no one ever spoke like the way this man does. They discovered a power and a truth to his words they could find nowhere else. Now, to just think about what this means for us. If we are Christians, we know very well that we haven't left bias behind us. We still have things in our hearts where we're unwilling to listen to what God says. And that very often blinds us to the power and the relevance of Jesus' teaching for our lives. Now, you know, one, one of the most common questions that people ask pastors and ministers is, you know, how can I find out God's will for my life? How can I find out what he wants me to do? It, especially in the big and difficult questions of life, choosing a do- job or where to marry, where, who, sorry, who to marry, where to live and, and things like that. But plenty of other more day-to-day things as well. Now, obviously, spending time quietly in prayer about these decisions is always the best start. But the implication of Jesus' words is this, you know, the more you want to do God's will, the more you are willing to, the more that you say to him, I am willing to do what you want, even if it costs me, the clearer the reality and the power of his teaching will be, and the clearer the direction for our lives will be. The more we want to obey him, the more we are willing to give up our own desires, our wills, our projects, our plans to do what he wants, to do what will bring honour to him the clearer he will make our path. Because the path of obedience to him, of course, is the one in which he will bless us most. And he will make that clearer and clearer. So if we can pray just as Jesus would later, not my will, but yours be done, we will recognize his will for us far more easily. 
So when we have decisions ahead of us, we need to recognize we are biased about all these decisions. We need to come to him and, and say to him, you know what I want, you know what I'm asking for, but please help me to put my will aside. Let your will be done, not mine. And when we pray that earnestly, we will see far more clearly the way we have to go. And back to that truth from chapter 8 as well. When we do that, when we hold to his teaching, then we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. In other words, the more we submit to what he commands, the more we will discover real truth and freedom in our lives. We'll be free to be not perhaps what we'd planned, but what he made us to be, what he created us to be, what we ought to be, what we can be. We will know the real feeling of freedom. And we will know the power of the truth, that the words of the Bible will speak to us with new freshness and life. Jesus was willing to speak to his greatest enemies, people who were trying to kill him. He was willing to come up to the feast to say these things. Because when he speaks his words into a life, it does show us what's wrong with our hearts and what right is, what goodness is, what hope and freedom are. That's what happened, or at least was beginning to happen, to some of those temple guards. He wanted to win them over, and when we listen to his, his words, he will win us over also.